This is Sunrise, the who, what, when, where, why, and WTF of Florida politics. I'm Rick Flagg reporting from Tallahassee, where the State Health Department reports 140 additional fatalities and almost 10,000 new cases of COVID-19. Governor Ron DeSantis delivers a message to the parents of Florida schoolchildren. He says they're better off back in the classroom, but it's up to parents to make that call. Why force someone to be in the classroom if they're uncomfortable doing so? Let's just find a way to make do. And if a school district needs to delay the school year for a few weeks so that everything will be in good shape, have at it. If parents want to get back to work during the pandemic, they'll need childcare for the kids, and parents can tell you what that means. We all know um, our lovely booger-eating children <laughs> love to spread their germs everywhere. So Miami-Dade Congresswoman Debbie Mukersell-Powell has filed a bill to help child care providers get federal assistance with protective gear and sanitation. That's why today I'm introducing the Ensuring Protection in Child Care Act, EPIC Act. Too bad that sounds exactly like the vile fluid you drink if you need to throw up. Then again, maybe it's appropriate. Today on Sunrise, a deep dive on the decision to close the Apalachicola Bay to the harvesting of wild oysters. They used to be the gold standard, but no longer. The oyster reefs in the bay have declined and deteriorated to the point that there are almost no oysters left in the bay. In the past, there were hundreds of oystermen making a good living harvesting oysters in the bay, and there was a vibrant oyster industry in Franklin County. Today, there's none. We'll also check out your calendar of political events and follow up on a Florida man and his kangaroo. And now, the top stories on Sunrise for Thursday, July 22nd. The state health department reports 9,785 new cases of COVID Wednesday. The running total is now just under 380,000 cases. Florida also recorded another 140 fatalities. That raises the statewide death toll from COVID-19 to 5,459. Now, 50 of those new fatalities were residents or staffers at nursing homes or other long-term care. There have been almost 2,500 deaths at these facilities since the pandemic began, which is almost half the total number in Florida. Nursing homes aren't the only places where Floridians are captives of COVID. State prisons are also experiencing the spike. As of Wednesday, 5,361 inmates and correction workers had tested positive. 34 prisoners have died since April. As more inmates and workers test positive, prisoners and their advocates are pleading with the governor to do more to protect people behind bars. Districts across the state are grappling with the safe reopening of public schools, and Governor Ron DeSantis is trying to reassure parents in advance. As the prevalence of the virus has increased over the past many weeks, fear and anxiety have increased as well. There's fear of the virus, of course, but also apprehension about what it means for families, jobs, and education as we approach the school year. The choice before us is whether we face our challenges with determination and resolve guided by evidence, or whether we allow ourselves to become paralyzed by fear. Fear doesn't help us combat the virus. The stress and apprehension it fosters just makes our health situation worse and knocks society on its heels. We have to fight the virus by being laser focused on protecting our populations most vulnerable to COVID-19, such as our elderly residents in long-term care facilities, while also ensuring that our state continues to function. We cannot do one to the exclusion of the other. We can best fight the virus by having a healthy, functioning society, and that especially includes our schools. Let's not let fear get the best of us and harm our children in the process. 
And DeSantis claims kids will suffer greater consequences if they're not allowed to return to the classroom soon. Our fight against COVID shouldn't lead us to deprive our kids of the tools they need to succeed. And here's the hard truth. Our kids are at the least risk from this virus and much lower risk than they are from seasonal influenza. Our kids also play the smallest role in transmission of the virus. Yet, it is our kids who have borne the harshest burden of the control measures instituted to protect against the virus. It's often asked whether it's safe to return kids to school, should also be asked how safe it is to keep schools closed. You can bet your bottom dollar that keeping schools closed will exacerbate existing achievement gaps between demographic groups, lead to more kids dropping out of school, disproportionately impact the least economically affluent Floridians, foster more social isolation, depression and anxiety, harm students with special needs, and deprive students of the ability to engage in sports and extracurricular activities. While the risks from, uh, to students from in-person learning are low, the cost of keeping schools closed are enormous. Now, distance learning was a stopgap measure adopted at a time when there was still uncertainty about the role of children in spreading the virus. Florida did better than most states with distance learning, but let's be honest, it's a far cry from in-person instruction and it placed a tremendous burden on our working parents. It's true that kids suffer far fewer health consequences if they catch COVID-19. The fear is that schools will turn into super spreaders and children will bring coronavirus home to their parents and even their grandparents who are far more likely to die. But the governor says no one will be forced to return to the classroom if they don't feel safe, including the kids and the teachers. I believe we owe every Florida parent a choice to send your child back to school for in-person instruction or to opt to maintain distance learning. The evidence that schools can be open in a safe way is overwhelming, yet I also understand the apprehension that some parents may feel, and I believe in empowering them with a choice. No parent should be required to send their child to in-person instruction if they don't want to. I also believe that special accommodations must be made for all students with significant health issues who may be more at risk from the virus. Now, I know many teachers and faculty are chomping at the bit to get back in the classroom uh, because they know how much their, their students depend on their instruction uh, and on their tutelage. We support you and want you to be safe. Safety precautions have been made for those who've worked throughout the pandemic, from everyone from working in healthcare to working in grocery stores, and I'm confident the same can be done for our educators. Now, for those teachers who may be higher risk or even those who just don't feel comfortable with in-person instruction, they should be given the option of working remotely. Why force someone to be in the classroom if they're uncomfortable doing so? Let's just find a way to make do. And if a school district needs to delay the school year for a few weeks so that everything will be in good shape, have at it. The important thing is that our parents have a meaningful choice when it comes to in-person education. That last part may have been the most important thing the governor said. School boards have been ordered to reopen by the end of August or face financial penalties if they don't. This is the first indication the state will back off on that deadline and give local officials more time to get the schools ready for the kids. Speaking of kids, a South Florida congresswoman files a bill to try to get financial assistance for daycare centers struggling to stay open during the pandemic. 
Debbie Mukersel-Powell of Miami-Dade is sponsoring what she calls the EPIC Act. That's short for Ensuring Protection in Child Care. It would pay for personal protective equipment and other gear at facilities that provide child care. We all know how important and how crucial our child care facilities are for our economic recovery. And we know that we have to prioritize making them safe for our children, for the staff that will work in the child care centers, for their workers, and also for their families. Before the coronavirus pandemic set in, our, nation, our nation's child care system was already fragile. Child care centers are expensive to run, providers operate on thin margins, workers make low wages, and families who need it the most often struggle to afford quality care. Because of decades of underinvestment and the failure to acknowledge that childcare is a public good, that they're part of our economy, part of our uh, culture, these businesses have been struggling to get by. And as COVID-19 spreads across the nation, over 60% of this nation's childcare facilities have been forced to close. And of those that have somehow managed to stay open, 85% are operating with less than half of their usual enrollment. As with many systemic issues, this pandemic has made many across the country realize how essential childcare is, not just for the health and development of our youngest children, but also for economic well-being. Parents in South Florida and across the country are trying to return to work, but they're either unable to find care for their children or are waiting for assurances that their children will be kept safe from COVID at these facilities. That's why today I'm introducing the Ensuring Protection in Child Care Act, EPIC Act, a bill that will allow child care facilities to utilize federal resources to purchase personal protective equipment, cleaning materials, and other supplies needed to keep their staff and their children healthy and safe. This legislation will help provide child care centers with the resources they need to reopen and remain open. They provide parents with peace of mind that their children will be cared for, and it'll boost, help boost our economic recovery by helping our working families return to work once public health conditions allow. Mothers and fathers who are the superheroes who right now, because of the pandemic, you've all been required to continue working. You've been required to become teachers at home, helping your kids if they're in school, navigate online learning, worrying about the health of your kids, your health, the health of our parents or grandparents, and this, you know, I've, as a mom myself, it's one of the small things that I thought we could do right away. There are a lot of things that we need to get done through the pandemic. So many different issues, so, ma so many complicated questions that we have to answer and address. But I think this is one of the most basic, straightforward um, federal issues that we can address right away to appropriate, to make sure that we have the funding necessary to support our child care centers. And we know that we're going to need child care when parents slowly return to work when we're ready to do that. And this bill is just going to be one more resource for child care centers and for parents to know that they will be able to drop off their kids in a place that's going to be safe, that's going to have all the tools necessary to protect your kids, the staff, and the families in our communities. The Congresswoman says her bill helps parents and daycare workers. Crystal Smith, who lives in the Florida Keys, fits both of those categories. I'm a parent. I'm also an instructor for a children's program. So we cater to ages 0 through 12. And uh, just recently had to shut down our um, program. You know, we wore our PPE. We cleaned everything. It's just we couldn't afford with our numbers 
to hire an extra staff member to clean everything as well on top of what we're doing because it's not just about the deep cleaning which is essential but it's also about keeping everything clean as you go which we all know um our lovely booger eating children <laughs> love to spread their germs everywhere so we kind of have to stay behind them and um keep that clean and added costs of, of PPE, of, um, like you said, the gloves and the cleaners, and then that extra person, it's just not attainable, um, unfortunately, most of the time. So we really need this funding to go through so that we can go ahead and get these kids back in school to um, help these parents so they can go back to work if work's available. It's really, really, really important as a parent and instructor that we get the funding that we need, really need to support these, these child care facilities and the school systems. More than 60% of the nation's child care facilities have been forced to close during the pandemic, and most of the ones that are open are operating at less than half the usual enrollment, which means they're running in the red. Next on Sunrise, the State Wildlife Commission votes to close oyster harvesting in Apalachicola Bay. You're listening to the Sunrise Podcast from Florida Politics, and we are much obliged. Florida Hospital Association members are safe, ready, and equipped to care for all Floridians. As our hospitals resume elective procedures, ensuring the safety and well-being of our patients, employees, and communities remains our first priority. Contact your local health care provider for information on visitation policies, access restrictions, and how to get needed care safely please visit the Florida Hospital Association at fha.org slash COVID for more information. Welcome back to Sunrise. Apalachicola in the Florida Panhandle is renowned for something it doesn't produce anymore, some of the best-tasting oysters in the world. Generations of Franklin County residents made a living harvesting or packing them, and the town is literally built on empty shells that piled up near seafood houses over the years. They even called the local radio station Oyster Radio. It's pretty good, too. But over the past decade, those oysters have all but disappeared. There was a prolonged drought. Too many oysters were harvested. Georgia keeps taking more of the fresh water that used to flow downriver to Apalachicola Bay. That alters the delicate balance in the estuaries where oysters used to thrive. The Deepwater Horizon oil spill also contributed to the damage. The state has tried several things to revive the bay, but nothing has worked. So the Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission has voted to close it for five years. In the past, this would have triggered a flood of protest from seafood workers who made a living on the oyster beds. But Shannon Hartsfield of Apalachicola says there are none left. There is no orchard in orchard right now. There was a handful before the winter bars were closed. There's very few guys on the water making their living on the water. We have constantly seen this bay trying and trying to recover. Without the pressure of the orchardmen on it, I feel like that we could go back and have a commercial industry again. There is a lot being said, you know, about disclosure is scary. It's a scary thing to ask for. But I know in my heart that this will make us a stronger bay and a harvest situation. You know, so we've got to rebuild our beds where our seafood workers can go back to work and make a decent living. Stephen Rash owns Water Street Seafood in Apalachicola. He's convinced closing the bay is the only way to revive the oyster industry. He only wishes this had happened five years ago. Water Street employs over 60 people and supports over 100 fishermen, so almost 200 families depend on Water Street Seafood for their living. Oysters have been a significant part of our business, and Apalachicola Bay used to be our main source of oysters. Three years ago, we quit buying Apalachicola oysters because they are an endangered species and should not be harvested. 
The oyster reefs in the bay have declined and deteriorated to the point that there are almost no oysters left in the bay. In the past, there were hundreds of oystermen making a good living harvesting oysters in the bay, and there was a vibrant oyster industry in Franklin County. Today, there's none. The state of Florida is in the beginning stages of a new rebuilding program, the oysters in Apalachicola Bay. Uh, key to the success of this rebuilding program is a closure of oyster harvesting. You cannot rebuild and take away at the same time. If the bay is not closed, any oysters that appear will quickly be harvested. The bay should be reopened to commercial fishing when the abundance of oysters is at a level that can support a commercial harvest. Stakeholders have been asking to close the bay for over five years. The oysters have declined 98%. If this was redfish or trout or ducks or deer and they declined 98%, I would think that this commission would act very quickly to close harvest. So, again, the oysters have declined 98%. There should be no, there should be no thinking about whether it needs to be closed or not. Um, so if we closed five years ago and been rebuilding it, Today, we'd probably have a pretty good oyster industry going. So I fully support an oyster closure and hope that um, the state of Florida will continue to take the steps needed to rebuild the bay and hopefully one day bring back the oyster reefs. State Wildlife Commissioner Mike Sowell has been dealing with the Apalachicola Bay issue since the late 90s, and he agrees the commission should have done this a long time ago. Look, this is a special place for Florida, and this is a, a, a region that unfortunately has taken multiple hits and I remember back in the in the late 90s uh, dealing with the, the initial run on the, the Apalachicola Chattahoochee Flint I'll call them water wars um, and seeing some of the collapse that occurred in the bay they took another hit uh, with the oil spill so it is it is undeniably uh, an area that needs our attention and it is truly unfortunate that we're having to take this drastic action, but candidly, I'm, I'm fully supportive of it, and it's unfortunate that we've taken this long to, to get to this very difficult decision. The plan is to close the bay to the harvesting of wild oysters until the end of 2025, and Wildlife Conservation Commission Chairman Eric Sutton says there's $20 million in the meantime to help rebuild the reefs and rehabilitate the oyster industry. The FWC and Apalachicola have a, a very special relationship. I mean, the Apalachicola and the history of the oysters is a very unique story in, in Florida. So we're embedded and ingrained with the, the industry and the stakeholders. We haven't always agreed, but we all agree on one thing. It's not that we're shutting down the oyster business. We're doing what's necessary to rebuild the oyster industry, and and, and a, a bittersweet moment again today is to acknowledge that it is essentially no longer functioning as an oyster fishery, but we do have funding that will hopefully get us back there. We're going to continue to be emotionally, financially, and scientifically invested to bring back this Florida treasure. There will still be a limited supply of Apalachicola oysters that are being grown in the bay in aquaculture projects, but you'll have to wait more than five years to get the real ones. If this works, the wait will be worth it. If not, we'll have lost another one of Florida's natural treasures, which is something that happens all too often. Your calendar of events begins with another meeting of the Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission at 9. They'll be discussing rules about the possession of non-native reptiles like green iguanas, tegu lizards, and pythons.
The Revenue Estimating Conference meets at 9 to analyze issues related to the Education Enhancement Trust Fund, the Tobacco Settlement Trust Fund, and the State School Trust Fund. A task force working on plans for a new toll road from Collier County to Polk County will hold an online meeting at 9.30. The Gulf Coast College Board of Trustees meets at 10 in Panama City. Florida Secretary of State Laurel Lee will take part in an online Florida Suffrage Tea Time event by the Florida Commission on the Status of Women. That's at noon. The Northwest Florida Water Management District Governing Board meets by conference call at 1. The University of Central Florida Board of Trustees holds an online meeting at 2. The Florida International University Trustees meet online at 3 after holding committee hearings at 2. And the North Central Florida Regional Planning Council holds an online meeting at 7. Finally today, a Florida man who owns a kangaroo named Jack found hopping through Fort Lauderdale last week is facing criminal charges for letting it escape and having no proof of purchase. The State Wildlife Commission has also filed a violation notice against 24-year-old Anthony Macias because he did not have a permit for the animal. Police also say the zoning in Fort Lauderdale doesn't allow them in the first place. Jack's being held at a facility that does have the right permits right now as the Wildlife Commission tries to find him a brand new home. That's it for today's episode of Sunrise. I'm Rick Flagg in Tallahassee, inviting you to join us again tomorrow as we plumb the depths of Florida politics.